Baruch Hashem. Today is Monday, March 13th, 2023, and I'm happy to say Boker uh, Tov to those in front of me and those on the screen. Um, one correction I want to make, uh, I trust that, uh, again, I'm dealing with secondary sources, so it's not that I made this up, but I read, and I'm told it's not so. I'm talking about the Ragged Shava. I, was, uh, I read that the Ragged Shava was one of the early Talmidim of Tonchei Tamimim in Chabad, going back to, uh, it was founded in 1896, 1897. And uh, my dear Talmud, I.A. Liebman, tells me that he never really studied in Tonchei uh, Tamimim. Yosef Rosen was born in Ragashav, now Belarus, into a Hasidic family of Chabad Kapust Hasidim. For those of you who don't know what that means, the Tzemech Tzedek had a few sons who became Rebbeim. The one we know is Reb Shmuel, that's uh, the standard Chabad. He had another son who was the Kapust Rebbe, and that dynasty was totally wiped out by World War II. And Rabbi Yosef Rosen was born into that dynasty. And when he was very young, uh, he, everyone noticed his mind was a Gainisha cup. He uh, was sent to study in Sklutsk, uh, along with Chaim Salavechik, five years his senior, under the Beis HaLevi, Rabbi Chaim's father. He stu- subsequently studied under Rabbi Yeshua Leib Diskin, the Maral Diskin in Shlav. In 1889, he assumed the rabbinate of the Hasidic community in Dvinsk for almost 40, 50 years. And then, of course, as we mentioned, his non-Hasidic counterpart was the Meir Simcha of Dvinsk. Now, he's, he did have a relationship with Chabad, but not that he was a formal student, he was via Kapust, and he was later close to both the Rashab, the fifth Rebbe, and the sixth Rebbe. So evidently, where I got the information that he said in Tomchei Tamimim, it simply was a fallout of his involvement with Chabad, uh, the Rebbeim on the peripheral, and the Kapusta as his own youth. Okay. Now I want to come back to uh, Yachal, to Rebbeim Shapiro. As I said, we're starting to scratch the surface. We have a long way to go. But I want to give a general overtone, overlook at uh, Rabbi Shapiro's life, and then we'll analyze step by step, and I'll introduce you to some very, very fascinating sources. Now, as we said last week, he's years 1887-1933. In retrospect, he was a very tragic figure, but we can't define our life story. It's a question of the Rebani Shalaylam and also uh, we have to be honest, uh, he worked very hard. The years that he did live, it's like uh, Rabbi Revel on his deathbed. Rabbi Revel's years were 1885-1940 and he said to his wife that it's not how long you live but what you accomplish. And uh, you can say the same thing about Rabbi Meir Shapiro. he was born in, into a Hasidic family, into a wealthy family. 
underlined the word wealthy, as you will see today, that plays a very important role in understanding the story of Yeshivat Chachmei Lublin, Yachal. Uh, he was a gonadir, and uh, at a young age already was in the rabbinate, went on to become a member of the, I believe it's pronounced Sem, I, I was corrected on the pronunciation, Nachum uh, Lam, if I'm mispronouncing it, correct me again. He was a member of the Sem, is the parliament, the, is it right or wrong? Uh, I... I, 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 I someone corrected me maybe I don't know maybe it was Mark Lich someone corrected me that's all I can say so uh, at a young age already he was a member of the parliament for Agudat Yisrael uh, why was he chosen not only his ability in learning but he spoke the language he spoke Polish and he was a fabulous speaker and he represented Agudat Yisrael Bekavod the fact that he represented a good Israel will play a big role in, in all his plans later because it gave him a broader vision. In other words, if you're a kid, a yingle in a steller in a small city, it's one thing. But when you're part of a good Israel, you're a member of the parliament, you see already a much broader vision. And this broader vision motivated him, as we will see. Now, we ended off the class last week, uh, his great achievement, Agudit uh, Yisrael, the Daf Yomi. And as I said last week, and we'll see it in more detail, I'm going to show you a doctorate that was done about uh, Rav Meir Shapiro, but not today. Uh, it could be the idea was not his, but there's no question that he's the one who publicized it. He put it on the map, and it's fascinating stories how the heart of it was Hagodet Yisrael. And uh, you have to give credit to Reb Meir Shapiro, Hagodet Yisrael, the, the Siyam, and this achievement lives on, and we'll see later, it not only lives on, but it became the granddaddy of many other similar ideas all based upon what Rabbi Meir Shapiro publicized at the Agudah Kenishi in 1923. Then he uh, goes on, he becomes the rabbi of Piyotikov, that is the city that the, the Lau family takes over after he leaves to go further. And uh, during this entire period, he is troubled about the status of the boys learning Torah in Poland. And uh, as we will see, it was very haphazard, very desolatory. We'll analyze it in detail. And he comes up with this idea of a focal central yeshiva. This idea was revolutionary for Poland, for the Ukraine. Did not exist there at all. And beginning with 23 on, to a certain degree, he becomes a Meshuga Ledava Echad to build the central yeshiva. His plan is grandiose in many, many ways. His thinking resembles exactly the thinking of my cousin, Rabbi Dov Revel.
very, very similar. Rabbi Dovrevel became Mishugala Dovrechad basically at the same time. They parallel each other, Mamish, year for year. And uh, a yeshiva, a campus, dignity, covered Hatera, $5 million campaign in America. Everyone laughed, they were hysterical. You should know that Rabbi Shapiro and Rabbi Revel, if you want to do a proper movie comparing the two, everyone laughed at Revel, everyone laughed at Rabbi Shapiro. And there's no question that it shortened Rabbi Shapiro's life. The traveling, the fundraising, the heartache. Uh, Rabbi Revel outlived the building of the yeshiva, but the depression, uh, what happened in 29, uh, if you've heard my lectures, <laughs> the pledges that the yeshiva had were not worth the paper they were written on. And... Uh, it was a lot of Akmas Nefesh, that Rabbi Revel survived the depression and then the request, save us, save us from Hitler. He died young and uh, Rabbi Shapiro died particularly, particularly young. Now, what's also fascinating about Rabbi Shapiro, and again, I don't want to read into it. I, wanna, I want to remove my religious Zionist commitments and, and just look at it black and white. He, it, it was a period that affected the Gedoli Israel. I mean, God was talking to us. It affects us where we're sitting today in the year 2023. You know, we're, we're different than they were a hundred years ago. I just uh, emailed my brother. Uh, my brother sent me a link to something on Meg Ahana's father, which looks very fascinating from the Svarim blog. blog. But uh, I, I emailed my brother that Purim in my home on Purim was very different than 2115 Washington Avenue. What do I mean by that? That we grew up in you know, Washington Avenue, 2115. And uh, just think for a minute. We were overwhelmed. My wife could barely, we could barely handle it. We got my, I took my wife to McGillar at 10, to hear the 10 o'clock Chabad reading. Come home within a few minutes, there were 30 direct descendants in our house, and only part of our treasures, but 30 already is 30. No children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Then I noticed at a certain point, what are my grandchildren doing? Comparing their guns. They take their gun, they compare that. Now you just think, uh, some would say to me, growing up in the Bronx, 1953, Aaron, you're going to celebrate Purim and Eretz Yisrael and your grandchildren are going to compare the pistols they carry and that, that I paid for, by the way. Uh, so Baruch Hashem, I announced to my grandchildren, anyone gets a pen, many, many have now. So the word, what happened in the 20s, the world was different. You see, the Zionist movement raised the consciousness of Eretz Yisrael. Zionist movement began with Gedoli Yisrael. No one realizes that. Rav Alkali, Rav Kalisher, Rav Molova. But you've heard my lectures and the article just appeared. They didn't change the world. They planted the seeds. Herzl changed the world. But it affected everyone. So that the Chafetz Chaim, what does he start inspiring? What did Rotten become famous for? Kadaj Kachim. In other words... Why do you need Kachim? 
Now, Chazchan said, based on Migas will be rebuilt, and that Paskin Shailis, we have to know how to pass, we have to know Vitzaton the Avoider, how to do the Avoider Sakaitish. It affected, so you see, Reb Meir Shapiro, and this is so sad, he, is, he was troubled that he's not building Yeshiva Tachmei Lublin in Eretz Yisrael. And you'll see their quotes uh, from him. Uh, and and Rav Lau from Yerushalayim approached him at a certain point. Why don't you build Eretz Yisrael? And his response was, if you would have only approached me before I started building in Lublin, I would have built Eretz Yisrael. But, you know, it was a double-edged sword because where were his Talmudim? You just can't come to Eretz Yisrael and build the yeshiva. Yisrael already had its yeshiva yashan, it had its way, it had its mahalach. Uh, you all know very well that Rav Kook was viewed as an outsider. Who is he? And chamfet the chiloniyim, chamfet, you know that Jewish word? All right, Baruch Hashem. Uh, he, he, uh, Charlie, comfort, you know what the word means? Uh, uh, to fawn over, to be obsequious to the Chiloniyim. I'll show you a source where, where they criticize him. You see, but he dreamt, Halavai, I could have, have, could have built it in Eretz Yisrael. Now, I can add to this, and you should know this, uh, how, how can you prove that... Uh, he was so attached to Eretz Yisrael, Yachal, Yeshiva Yachal, part of the curriculum was Kadshim, part of the curriculum Zroyim. Not only that, I said, you saw pictures of this, I've seen pictures in many volumes that have come out, when you came into Yeshiva Yachal, on the ground floor was a model of the basic English. You think it's only here at the, originally uh, the Holy Land Hotel, now it's at the uh, museum. There in Yachau, and, 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 and the man had a deep, deep attachment to Eretz Yisrael. And you see, people, people generally make a mistake when, when you talk about Agurit uh, Yisrael, so people take the point of view they were opposed. They were not opposed to Eretz Yisrael, Chalila. They were opposed to the secularization, to that attitude, the Chalutzim Chiloniyim. And Einachinami, what can I tell you? Rav Kook had a, it's an amazing letter in the Igrot Rav Kook, where it's a famous letter written over a hundred years ago where Rosh Hashiva turns to Rav Kook and asks for advice, two of his sons, you've got to remember that, there wasn't a family that wasn't decimated by the secularization of the turn of the 20th century. Gidole, Gidole Yisrael. But they're children. They're children. That's why I always say you don't realize the Rav's achievement in Boston to raise three terrific children. No one equals that from that period you, it, it, it's it's unique to, to, to put it mildly uh, you take the Tarragon family it's an amazing story their grandfather comes to Baltimore a hundred years ago plus and all the descendants are from 
You take other Gedolim. I don't want to mention names. I can give you endless names of Gedolim Yisrael that we mentioned in the Sunday class time after time. No, not all their children, not all their descendants are from Lower Lainu. Far from it, far from it. Not all, okay, no. The, the pressure, the intense, the world changing, and, and this impacted and desire, people take the attitude, you know, good, good at Israel is Karen Ayishev. Karen Ayishev, just think for a minute. Think how B'nai Brak began. Uh, think, think of the Kibbutzim, the Shuraf, Poli good at Yisrael, and, and Maram Lublin. But he built, he built in uh, Eretz Necha, and it did not survive, unfortunately. Now, with the yeshiva, which of course is the great achievement in, in his lifetime, no one could believe what he did, was unbelievable. But that did not live on. But nevertheless, we have to understand what the yeshiva was about, what the story was about. And uh, just very briefly, in 23, early 20s already, he holds a massive dedication. Tens of thousands of Jews turn out, the, among them his own Rebbe, the Chatkava Rebbe, the Gede Rebbe. The Gede Rebbe is very important because no one had more influence than the Gede Rebbe in terms of numbers of Hasidim. Today it's hard to tell who has the most Hasidim. Often everyone would say Chabad. But you got to realize with Chabad, it's not total Hasidim. There, there are hundreds of thousands of Jews in the world who identify with Chabad. But it's not the way a Gerachas that identifies with the Gerah Rebbe today. It's, uh, you, I think you understand what I'm saying. A Gerachas you have to be, it's like a woman, either you're pregnant or you're not pregnant. A Gerachasid has to be a total Gerachasid. Uh, a Belsa Chasid has to be a total Belsa. Chabad, you have many fellow travelers, many people who say we identify. It's hard to tell who has the most Chasidim, but in, in before World War II, there's no question that they get a Rebbe. And in order for Gurich Israel to get off the map, it was a question of the Gever Rebbe supporting it. Anything like Dafyomi, the Gever Rebbe supported. Yeshiva Chachma Lublin, the Gever Rebbe supported. Now, when the building was ready, and it took many, many years, it took fundraising and traveling, and what he didn't do. When the building was ready, again, there was a massive outpour dedication. Now, we'll come to this in detail. I'm going to show you how it, how it ties in with the magic moment in my life. Not today yet, but we'll get there. But there was criticism. You see, we Jews, we Torah Jews, are conservative. Small c. And you've heard this more than once. Uh, we didn't do this in the past. We spoke about it yesterday when Rev. Menashe Klein, uh, remember when, when the person asking the question from Menashe Klein says 
that they spoke with the rabbi in this community. We still don't know for sure where it is. I, I told Jack he should travel there and, and witness with his own eyes, but we still don't know for sure. But when they saw the rabbi, they said, in your public, we didn't do this. Someone told off the rabbi, and the rabbi says, Europe, who cares about Europe? Those rabbis don't know what's going on here. And there's truth on either side. This is not a simple matter. What can we innovate? What can't we innovate? And, and uh, there was a lot of criticism of the Maram Lublin overdoing it too loud. I and her. Why do the Goyim have to know what's going on? Why does it have to be front page news, New York Times or whatever the main paper was in Poland? You follow? The, the, he, he didn't have an easy life. What, what supported him was that his Rebbe came out in his favor and the Chatkova, and of course the Gera Rebbe. And uh, he succeeded. What a building. What a yeshiva. What students. What dignity. What learning. What knowledge. And never right after the yeshiva opens, he dies. Doesn't survive. 1933. Right after. Uh, the truth is, and we'll go into great detail, but I'm just summarizing to give you a picture. They never found an adequate replacement for the Maram Lublin. They struggled. Who will run the yeshiva? Who's responsible? Who will be the Rosh Yeshiva? Who will set the tone? What role does the mashkiach play? How much Hasidus do you learn? The Maram was unique. Afterwards, they struggled. And then before you could open your eyes and say we've reestablished, we've reached the modus vivenda, Hitler came. And that building that he built that he put his blood into became the headquarters of the Gestapo in that area. Beautiful building. So sad. Afterwards, the communists took over. First it was a school, a Catholic school. I have no idea they took these buildings. Not that the communists desecrated them, it was the Hitler who desecrated, but they simply took the buildings in the sense, it's a beautiful building. We need it for the government, naturalized everything. No, they nationalized this building as well. Used this as school, it was a medical school at one time, a Catholic school at one time, and uh, finally, uh, in 2004, the building was returned to the Jewish community. And uh, technically, it is the biggest Jewish community in Poland today is in Warsaw. So technically, it's the Warsaw Jewish community that considers it a branch, and they're responsible for the building. 
and it's become a tourist attraction. They refurbished the building in uh, about uh, 2007. They put a lot of money, and a lot of money from Brooklyn went into that refurbishing of the building. Uh, maybe Lakewood is too put in. I don't want to embarrass a, a young man from Lakewood. Uh, they, and it, I, I'm told it's quite beautiful. You were there. And they make the Sima Shasta, which is very, very emotionally moving that they should honor his memory, make the Siam Hashas there, very, very nice. Uh, I understand that the building is used today, they house tourists there, that's what I'm told, it's basically like a hotel, and uh, the building is alive and kicking, but it's not, not what he thought about. Uh, as far as Reb Mayor Shapiro so his grave the cemetery where he's buried uh, that cemetery the Nazis already overran but what's interesting is his particular grave remained intact and uh, in 1958 they brought his remains to Israel to, I believe it's in Harman Khat. Menachem Zimba, and uh, there was one of my one of my good introductions to the Israeli reality. Do you remember? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, uh, I think I mentioned it. I did mention it over the decades because it left a deep, a deep scar in my uh, psychic existence. What happened was, uh, I think it was uh, Menachem Parish, uh, who was a Chavek Knesset, and he announced in the Knesset that uh, now reburying Rabbi Meir Shapiro, and he said a few words of eulogy and asked everyone to rise. And uh, the Shomat Seir, they filed a complaint. How did he have the right? Who the heck is this? What are we rising for? And uh, it opened my eyes to the enmity uh, between uh, the various good Jews living here. Today, uh, it's it's a very different situation. In other words, when when I came in Aliyah, my grandson uh, gave me a gift. He found this in a school. They were throwing it out. It's a book on the Israeli army, uh, published in before the Six Day War, and all the troops, the stories, the, and published by the army. And on every page, there's a pasuk from the Chazak your country inherited today if the army would publish a book like that there'd be such an outcry it'd be unbelievable alright I hope it'll change but I'm just describing the reality and you because see the previous generation yet had understanding and knowledge even if they were totally off the path but the present generation has no knowledge, no understanding. It's a fourth, fifth, sixth generation raised with any chinuch torani whatsoever. Okay, but that's basically the story in outline. Now, I just want to say something else for the uh, sake, for the parashit to be historically accurate. And I... Um, thank Rabbi Label Fondland 
if I'm pronouncing it right, F-A-J-N-L-A-N-D. Uh, so he corresponds to Talmud listening, and he sent me a copy of a description of the yeshivas. We're talking about a description from Sefer Ohalei Shem. And it's a description here, you can see it's an interesting photograph. It lists out the Rav Shalom Bear, Lubavitch, the yeshiva he organized, the yeshiva headed up by his son, the sixth Rebbe, Rav Yosef Yitzchak, Puriyats. And yes, there was a Hasidic yeshiva before Yacha. Lubavitch, they were the first to really, this was a, a yeshiva that attracted students from all over, who came to Lubavitch. And it's interesting to see that the yeshiva boasts how it takes care of all the needs of the students. And one of the, the main need they mention is dealing with the draft. That students to get exemptions, the yeshiva helps them. It reminds me of YU. Again, in my time in YU, I don't know, Charlie, if you remember, Dean Zah, Rav Shulaleb Zah. And what was his main responsibility? getting the four Ds for the students in the yeshiva. So here you have Lubavitch, and the yeshiva was organized and had gradations. He, there's a good description here. There was like the equivalent of a high school yeshiva, then a base medrash, and then you had like an elegant kolel for the top layer of students. But this may be declared a forerunner of yeshiva Tachmei Lublin, but in no way does it compare, for many reasons. And I just want to be very brief, because I want to go into detail. Essentially, and we're going to come back to this in a few minutes, you didn't go to the yeshiva unless you were a Lubavitcher. Yachal was a much more universal concept. Two, you went to the yeshiva, but it's not that the yeshiva had a formal dormitory and it had a lunchroom. You had to manage on your own. Yachal was modeled like Yeshiva University. Meir Shapiro visited, as I'll show you, the, visited YU, this is what becomes YU, visited Drevel. How do you do it? Lodge them, clothe them, feed them. You don't start to realize what YU was like in the 20s, into the 30s, into the 40s. I remember, I remember, before Pesach, any student who needed a new suit, Yeshiva arranged for it. Wealthy Balabatam, the garment industry, 7th Avenue. Many from Jews. Jewish center, where did their money come from? They clothed the yeshiva boys. Send us a hundred yeshiva boys. Shoes. You have no idea. Twenties, thirties, forties. Yachal was modeled like that. So you see, yes, there were antecedents, but what... What Meir Shapiro did was totally revolutionary. Okay.
Now let's begin and dig a little deeper. And I want to introduce you to a very important volume that I remember I saved my lunch money, put it all together and bought it. And it's one of the greatest purchases I ever made. It's a rare volume today. Maybe it's online. Natan, uh, check. Anything is possible. All my rare books become worthless. They're all, I have the Manelli Garrett. Someone told me the Manelli Garrett is online today. Baruch Hashem. Okay. <coughs> In America there was the Histadruta Ivrit. Anyone know what I'm talking about? United States of America, the Zionist world, the Zionist movement has resuscitated an ancient language. We now read, write, speak Hebrew. The Estadritra Ivrit was the organization across all of America encouraged Hebrew. They had a weekly newspaper, Hadoa. Does anyone remember it? Israel, Hadoa, Hebrew. Charlie, where did the Rav publish some of his first publications? Hadoa. The Hesperan, the Briskarav, the Hesperan, Reb Chaim Hela. The famous interview with the Rav. Hadoa. Now, they also published. By the way, Hanadawa was not necessarily from, you have to understand, this represented the Zionist organization in America, although, let's be honest, the greatest amount of their readers who made the effort to learn Hebrew were Shomre Shabbos people. So they catered to the crowd. If they could publish something from the Rav, Adarabah the Adarabah, they would be happy to do it. Now, in their publishing house, they published the volume Mostot HaTorah Be'erapa Be'vinyanim Ubechubanim. That volume was published in 1956. It was edited by my professor from graduate school, the rabbi of the young Israel of Borough Park, uh, where Vic's brother is rabbi today, Rabbi Moshe Snow. Go back many, many years. Rabbi Shmuel Kalman Mirsky was the rabbi there. Have you heard of Professor Mirsky? Of Shmuel Kalman Mirsky? Do you remember him, Charlie, from Yeshiva? The name, not even the name. He taught in the in your time. He taught in the graduate school. In the in in the twenties, he began teaching in Teachers Institute. There was no graduate schools yet. Professor Mirsky was a Yerushalmi kid. He was a Jerusalem kid who wound up, like many Yerushalmiim, wound up in America after World War I. There was starvation here. It was not easy. I'm not criticizing anyone who went to America. And he was one of them. He was Bucky and Shas. In America, he broadened. And in his 50s, he gets a doctorate from Columbia University. He edited... Uh, midrashic writings didn't, but his most famous work was the Nitziv, the Hamak Dava of the Nitziv. The scholarly edition is Rav Shmuel Kalman Mirsky's edition, published by Mosad Rav Kok. So he was a very fascinating individual, uh, and he was Rabbi of Israel, which as time moved on, I can tell you, it was a bad shidduch. Why? He was 
Yerushalmi Agon. As the young Israel um, Americanized, they wanted, I mean, in Barapak then, it was a different Barapak. Today, in Barapak, they would carry a Shmuel Kamen Mirsky on their hands. They would love him. But then they Americanized, they want a rabbi who can talk baseball and talk about the movies. You understand? They're, they're, it wasn't so easy for him as, as they Americanized, and he remained in the ivory tower of Torah and Yerit Shemayim and scholarship. Now, he edited this volume. In this volume, you have material that I'll be quoting on all the yeshivat, but on yeshiva, each one is written by someone else. On yeshiva Tachmed Lublin, the author is Dr. Hillel Zeidman. Now, Dr. Hillel Zeidman was a Warsaw ghetto survivor. Uh, I yet knew him. Uh, I taught his daughter. I hope Nomi is listening and honoring her father's memory. Nomi did the beautiful volume on Beis Yaakov, on, on Sarashnira. There's a beautiful volume that came out in Sarashnira. That's Nomi Zeidman. Uh, that's his daughter. There are other children as well, and uh, he became very close to the Rav. Some of the Rav's Yodzai drushes, the Rav allowed him to write it up in Hebrew. It was later published in Hebrew, what the Rav said in Yiddish. He originally said, he even, I believe he also wrote up originally in Yiddish, and published it in Yiddish, in the modern journal, and then it was translated, he translated it into Hebrew. A very, very capable individual. Now, what's so valuable about his uh, essay on Yeshiva Tachmei Lublin is that he lived it, he saw it with his own eyes, and he's very, very insightful. Now, I'm quoting the rest, I'm quoting from his essay now, beginning on page 393. And he says that in all of Galicia and in all of Poland, and remember, Galicia was part of Poland, separate from Poland, it's, uh, but uh, there, there were differences. Agalitsiana and Zain Yiddish given and under the Yiddish and the way he spoke Hebrew, Ashekidishani, Bimitsvaisavitsivani. It was it was a different world than the Palish world of Hasidus. Or slightly different. Uh, the Ungarish uh, were, were closer to the, uh, the, the, the Ukrainians, the, the, they were closer to, to, to the Ungarish, to the Hungarians, the Galiciana. Now, the, uh, I, I said Ukrainians, I should have said Galicia, Galicia, Galiciana. Go back and change uh, Ukraine to Galicia. Now, he, and he explains he says there were no yeshivat in all of Galicia and Poland. How can that, David, how can there be no yeshiva? Gidoli Israel were all over there. Rabbanim, Svarim, giants of Torah. Everyone learned. Your kid grew up, you went to your nearest shtibble or cloys. It was either called the shtibble or a cloys. It's exactly the same meaning. In the Hasidic courts, there were more established venues of learning. But it wasn't the yeshiva in the sense of a formal school. 
there's no gradation. You came in, you sat, you learned, you found a chavruta. You found an older student willing to teach you. In the Hasidic courts, everything centered around the Rebbe. You would only be there if that was your Rebbe. If you were that type of Hasid. And he gave examples. He said the Abnei Nezah, Sachcha, for Bavram Bunshtein, was a Gon Shebegoinim. In his court, many students came together, gathered around him. It was alive. It was kicking. But it's not a formal yeshiva. It focused on the Rebbe. He said, Sheyur, he shared his knowledge. Sachchav was a classic example. He gives other examples. The uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Zelik Morgenstern, you're dealing with the Sakhalov Rebbe. It's a going idea. Students gathered around him. But these were not classic yeshiva. You could learn, you could steig, you could become great. And there was a process of selection, a process of elimination, meaning, let's say for the sake of argument, you're 15 years old, 16 years old, you've been learning, and you're not seeing great bracha. Your parents said it's time to go to work. Those that really had tremendous ability, they gathered around the Rebbe, they bothered around the Rebbe, they bothered him, they heard they sure, they took what they can. They grew. But it's not like you had a high school, a college, gradations, classes, tests. It was a Hasidic court. The Rebbe's personality, I'm quoting him, dominated. Now, now you have to come to the Rebbe. The Rebbe, yes, he was happy to teach Torah, but this was far from his whole life. A Hasidic court, Shabbos, Yontif, Fabrenians, a Tish, Hasidic Tish. People want to see him. People have questions. People are waiting online to see the Rebbe. I saw this in Borough Park. A certain young man became a Rebbe many years ago. And uh, he wanted to meet me. I'd read my work on the Rav. And I remember coming to see him. There was a line outside waiting. I didn't have to wait in line. I told the Gabbai who I am. They ushered me in the back door. And I met with the Rebbe. With his, his wife was sitting next to him. It was an interesting experience very brilliant lady, an Israeli lady, uh, and, and she was his right hand. And I couldn't believe the crowd waiting, Yeshiva Bachrim, Litvisha, Siddisha people. They wanted advice. The uh, Rebbe, if you know who I'm talking about, Rav Deutsch. Anyone understand what I'm talking about? A fallout of Chabad. And, and the Rebbe is doing all this and and you can't expect him to 
totally give himself over to the yeshiva, to the young people who want to learn. It, the concept of a litvishi yeshiva did not exist. It was the Hasidic court. And as he says, you went to Gare, you sat and learned. There was, Yesherim were being given in Gare or Gur, Hebrew, Yiddish, given by the Rebbe's son-in-law. You didn't feel at home if you were not a Gera Chassid. And you went to Bells, yes, they were Shirm, they were Lamdonim, but only a Belzer would be there. Now, he says something crucially important, and I, I still remember this in my own life experience. He says, here in Poland, Everyone's learning. The overwhelming majority of the Jews were Hasidic. The overwhelming majority of the Jews were Shomrei Torah and Mitzvot. And yet, they had a, I would say, a contradictory attitude to Yeshiva boys, a dialectical tension. On one hand, they respected them, their learning. They'll be Gedolei Torah, they'll be Lamdanim. On the other hand, a bottle. You're not working. You're not making a living. You don't have money. Zeidman uses the word paradoxical. A paradoxical approach. Hebrew, paradox, kisha paradoxet, mitzad echad ha'aratza, umitzad sheni zil zil. Now where does this begin? Who feeds these boys? They have to go begging. Families, what we call them little teg. You know what I'm talking about, that they would divide up. Uh, good families would say, all right, Monday, send us two boys. Tuesday, send us two boys. That's the way to live. I just had to raise funds for a very valid cause. I feel funny asking people. I never had an experience like this where... Have students mad at me that I won't take their money? I, I made the goal very, very quickly, and uh, I have a student, a students to, uh, I asked, and they didn't respond right away, and oh, are they upset that I won't take their money? I said, all right, wait, wait. There'll be a time when, what I did, what I raised for, will go further, and want to publish. We may need more money then. I said, I'll turn to you first. You, fe you shouldn't feel uh, insulted. But all right, that's, I'm asking at the age of 85, students who have studied with me 50, 40, 30 years, all right. I get a response in dignity. Rebbe, I got a beautiful letter. 
Talmud Chaver, thank you for letting me join you in this great mitzvah. But when you're a kid of 15, 16, and you have to ask, I want food, it's a very awkward feeling. Now comes to the high point of today's shir, which you'll be able to quote and re-quote. Uh, where do they sleep at night? Rabbi Shapiro gets up. Anyone know what I'm about to say? This I heard, I think, already in Lakewood, when I learned in Lakewood from the Udapesh. Rabbi Shapiro gets up, he says, Thank God for the Ganovim. That gives the yeshiva boys a place to sleep. What's he talking about? Crooks are all over the place. What did they do in Poland? They would have the yeshiva boys sleep in the stores. It was protection against the Ganovim. Thank God for the Ganovim. All right, you understand? If we wouldn't have Ganovim, who would let the yeshiva boy into his business? Mind your sheft. Schlossdas benacht. I lock it up at night. My business. But you need shomrim. What do you have here in, in Gris? What do you have uh, in, in 27, 24-7? A shomer. Macholev, a shomer. Shomrim. Shiva boys need a place to sleep. Eight o'clock, the business closes. They come in at nine o'clock, pull out mattresses, put them on the floor, and that's where the yeshiva boys sleep. Reb Meir Shapiro was very upset. And he claimed, I'm quoting this, not my own thinking. This is quoting, this is the way Hillel Zeidman, who knew Reb Meir Shapiro, understood him. He felt that this lifestyle left a very negative feeling with the yeshiva boys. You always feel second rate. Now just think for a minute. You're always the need to apologize not a healthy attitude. You have to stand up in dignity. Torah, Yerit Shemayim, Misora, pride, achievement. But when you have to beg for food and place to sleep, it's a negative feeling. Rabbi Shapiro attributed this, and this is worth thinking about that this results in much of the pettiness machloiket in the Torah world. You see, when, when you have to, when you're poor, everything counts. It's my turf. Don't come in, don't budge in. Don't compromise me, don't crowd me. When you're a Baruch Hashem, Come in. I can share with you. I have enough. 
I'm not going to fight with you. And then you see, this feeling translated all over the rabbinate, if you talk about the rabbinate in America, the hashgacha, the scene, the, you don't even realize, the mechirat chametz, whatever provided income for the rabbis, they were... Shuls did not pay a salary. You got to know what it was like in the 20s, the 30s. It's a different world. A rabbi existed on his, the money he earned, kashra, misada kedushin, misada gitten, mechirat chametz. Open up revel. Take a look. What, why you rabbis came into communities the elder Rabbanim, the elder Rabbanim were hysterical. I have letters, I translated to English, it's in Revel. They were, you sent rabbis to Philadelphia, they're robbing our Parnassah. They're selling comets. Who are they? It's cutting our income. There's pettiness. When, see, when you can be big, this isn't the hate. The American rabbinate, some of the shuls later would make an, a, a, a contract with the rabbanim. They're not allowed to take any money for any rabbinic functions. You're getting a salary, we're paying you well with a decent standard, dignity. Not allowed to take any money. And you know, I, I have a principle uh, I don't touch money, but that's not because I'm, I was so wealthy years ago, but my first experiences in the Rabbinet I can never forget. In 1961, to get a call to give a phony hechsha, and when I turn it down, an elder Rav says to me, Vasi, Rabbi Rothkopf, du willst nicht sein reich? What's with you, Rabbi Rothkopf? You don't want to be rich? I want to tell you, I don't want to record, let him rest in peace. Big yuchas. But, wow. Be generous. No one goes to sleep hungry. But you see, it's the way you were raised. There's... Uh, I can understand very well when you have to schnur for a place to sleep, a place to eat, it leaves a scar in your psychic. Then you can be cynical, you can be petty. Endless machoikis rabbanim in Europe, in America, you see from the responsible literature what we're just dealing with the mashal how dare you have the women come after nightfall changing G'dolei Yisrael putting down other G'dolei Yisrael and this repeats it. and, and Rav Meir Shapiro was bothered by this it hurt him why why and here's where uh, Reb Hillel Zeidman is absolutely correct. Reb Meir Shapiro, he never knew poverty. His father, Reb Yaakov Shimshon, was a wealthy 
ביזנסמן. לא חסך שום דבר מבנו העילוי. Whatever he needed in his youth, he had. Wealthy family. It's like we had one classmate in YU early 50s. We were all Washington Heights Bronx kids. Few of us were upper middle class. Maybe middle class, upper lower class. One kid, his father had a business successful. Remember, when portable radios came out, he brought a portable radio to class. Charlie, do you remember that? It's also before your time. I don't know. Remember? No, that's after the portable radio. And we looked at this kid and got gestalt. Didn't lack for anything. We were poor kids. Rav Meir Shapiro was never poor. Rabbi Yaakov Reitman, that was his father-in-law, a Galician millionaire, businessman. He gave Rabbi Meir Shapiro a dowry. Rabbi Meir Shapiro was a wealthy person. Don't have to, you know, they're one of the biggest problems in the world. In Israel today, their organization is trying to help the visa card, the credit card. No, you spend, it's terrific. You don't have to take the money out of your pocket. David, you keep on spending at the end of the month, you're in trouble. We have Mikimis, or teach you, you have to balance, know what you're spending, what your limit is, what's going to come on. Am I right or wrong, Israel? You taught this is elementary today. So people have a problem, they have a credit card, credit card, credit card. But there's some people then never have to make a husband. Whatever the credit card will be. Baruch Hashem. You have no idea. Never have to make a husband. Terrific. This was Rabbi Meir Shapiro. And imagine how he felt looking at these yeshiva boys who had to thank the Rebbeinah that they're crooks in the world so they should have a place to sleep. And he started to dream of a real yeshiva. A very unique yeshiva. This is Poland, filled with Hasidus. Now, I also want to pray, pay credit to my cousin, to Rabbi Revel. And you have no idea what the world owes Rabbi Revel. And it's just criminal that Art uh, Scroll totally ignores him. It hurts me. I can tell you volumes doing that, that, that one, how they don't mention him at all. Man was mice and nefesh. All right, you don't like putting college and yeshiva under one roof. Could be you're right. You know what's going on today. But give credit. It began the, the story in America. And why you plays yeshiva, I shouldn't say why you, plays a big role 
in what's happening in Reb Meir Shapiro's mind. And here I want to reveal something. You'll see in a minute. All eyes in Europe were upon America. Following World War I, America is the center of Jewish life. Europe, I don't have to tell you what was before World War I, and then World War I comes, and the Germans fighting the French, the Russians, and the Jews caught in the middle. By now, millions of Jews have run away to America. And there's a yeshiva in America. The from Jews, you know, until then, all they heard about America, the Trefina Medina. I refer you to Rakefet's work on the Ribaz, which has just been reprinted, as I'll tell you after class. Trefina Medina. Everyone becomes a guy in America. Absolutely true, statistically. But now they're talking about a yeshiva gavoha. The Mechit the Eli is brought to America to teach on New York's Lower East Side. No, could you imagine in Europe, Tamir Chacham was sitting and talking, Kenzdus Glaven, can you believe it? The Mechit is jetzt in America? And as Zakh Shayurim and a hot Talmidim was verstehen him? He says Shayurim and he has Talmidim who understand him? All eyes. <coughs> and now Rabbi Revel, a hundred years ago, announces a five million dollar campaign to build a yeshiva, a campus, a building. A Moorish temple, you know what the building looks like, how it was designed. By the way, there was gold originally on top of the steeples, on top of the building. Gold plated, real gold. Real gold. It was taken off during the Depression and sold. And uh, people couldn't believe it. People are talking, people are gossiping. People are inspired. And this played a role in the Mayor Shapiro's thinking. You see, it filtered down to Europe. And later I'll give you the source, you'll see, he goes, he visits. There are reasons why. Now, I also want to mention there's another factor in Reb Meir Shapiro's thinking. And this, Hillel Zeidman says, and I think is absolutely correct. Had Reb Meir Shapiro remained the Shtatrav, uh, a city rabbi, uh, his vision would have been labriot. His vision would have been limited. You follow me, Ben? A Shtatrav, no, a Shtatrav is a Shtatrav. No, Azrael, who threw that out that until today the world tumbled over that? It's Reb Meir Simcha with the Chafetz Chaim. You know what I'm talking about? When, the, when they wanted to introduce, they should have high school curriculum, Limudei uh, Yisod, what do they call it in Israel? Uh, the core curriculum. What do they call it in Hebrew? Liba. Liba. Tochnit liba. Liba, liba, I think is the word. 
לימודי ליבה, אוקיי? לימודי יסוד, core curriculum. סוד חבטחיים זה פוסט. רב מאיר שמחה was in favor. And he said to the Chafetz Chaim, you're a klein ishtot rav. You don't understand the total picture. Am I right or wrong? I'm quoting, I wasn't there, but this is what I'm... Could you imagine Rav Meir Simcha telling off the Chafetz Chaim? But you can understand what he's saying. And, and, and Rav Meir Shapiro would have remained a, a klein ishtot rav. I, I can make you a, another analogy. Had the rav remained only in Boston, he wouldn't have been the rav. You follow me? The Rav becomes the Rav in New York at NYU with the RCA, with the OU, with the Young Israel, with the whole world, the Mizrahi, the Aguda, everything is revealed in front of him. It's like we sit in Yerushalayim and we know everything going on in the whole world. Like the Gemara in Pesachim, and it said that they sit and know every little secret. Ah. When he gets involved with a good Israel, there's a great kind of broadness to his involvement. And he can see a total picture. Something you don't have in a little shtut. He's now in the Sem, he's now in the Parliament, he's meeting with a goodistim, from Lithuania, from White Russia, from Germany, Poland, Galicia, America, Canada, Great Britain. It's a different, a different understanding. And he sees, look, you can't go on in a haphazard, desolatory feeling. Bolshevikism, socialism, communism, secular Zionism, inroads are being made all over. We can't go on, a yeshiva boy should be a laughing stock, a low yutzlachnik. <coughs> Excuse me, in my youth I remember this. I remember in the shuls, from Jews, yeshiva boy, they laughed, they looked down. There's not a professional, doesn't have a job. And Machnish Talebni doesn't make a good living. I still remember this. And I like Hillel Zeidman's words, a paradox. On one hand, you're a shaman mitzvah. On one hand, you understand what Torah learning is. Have respect. You should understand. You should respect. On the other hand, that in negative feeling, a butlin. I remember my grandfather, my Zayda, using that. Oh, that's a butlin. It's a butlin. It's a butlin. Wow. And... And this forced Reb Meir Simcha into this grandiose idea. A yeshiva, big, beautiful, dignity, 
we're no longer going to look down on a yeshiva bacha. Room, board, all his needs taken care of. This was Reb Meir Simcha. Reb Meir Shapiro. Thank you. Now, you should know there was opposition. Uh, you know, it's a big undertaking, a lot of money. Again, we're very hesitant. Anything new. Anything new. I remember when the NCSY began. A lot of cynics who know what the NCSY would develop into. Something new, uh, you're overstating it, overpraising it. Fundraising, again, that fundraising always scares us. Another cause, another need. So many people said they're ready yeshiva in Lito. Why do we need here? If anyone wants to go to yeshiva, get on a train and go to Slabotka, go to Tells, go to Mir, go to Panovich, go to Rotten. You follow? What do we need? Poland, Ukraine. And here, Sirab Meisenka understood very well. Poland and the Ukraine, it's different territory, different thinking, different approach to learning, as we will see. It's Hasidish. Litter, yeah, you find one or two that'll wind up in litter and become Litvakin. But it's not the answer to the needs of the populace in Poland and in the Ukraine. Another, another part of the opposition was very plain and simple. And this goes on all the time. Yeshivas in Litta after World War I were struggling. You had the upheaval of World War I, the return to the locations, communist takeover of some areas, and then the Great Depression. Do we need another yeshiva fundraising? and pulling away vital resources from us. And I, I, I've told you more than once, this, this problem lives on. I told you the story with Queens. It's a classic story. It's, every, everyone knows the story. But uh, Jamaica, you read Jamaica today in the news, every day someone else is getting killed in Jamaica. Imagine had the Jews stayed in Jamaica. And that's the story. The Rebbe comes to Jamaica world, after World War II in Umgadisha and he opens up and then the, the established Jew there <coughs> takes, takes him to Beitin. There's limited money with the Jews. You're going to take off from us. You're robbing us. He moved over to Kew Garden Hills, Main Street. And Fabian was just Fabian Schoenfeld, Zeichet, Sadek, Levrach. You have no idea who Fabian was. I mean, these are, these are great people that I knew. Great people. I had the schut of teaching his children. And Fabian Schoenfeld uh, 
barely had a minion of his own. He was just beginning. And he sent people and that made Kew Gardens Hills into Kew Gardens Hills. And I, I tell you, my own approach is whenever I've gotten a question of this nature, I always say, you know, I don't have the bitachin that Yomo has. Yomo has a different attitude than mine. I, I yet studied with the Israel Salanta. But uh, I always say, more Torah institutions, the better. You attract more people, people become from, people give generously, people see results. Well, I mean, when you see, when I see Yachad, what, you have no idea what I've seen in my life from NCSY, from Yachad, what they have accomplished. They have students who have challenged children. Their children are in their 50s today. They live covered in apartments that Yachad takes care of. I mean, you, you understand that? They're visited every other day. Someone comes to so, from social worker to see. And these are, they're educable to a certain extent, like they can be a checkout girl in, in, in a supermarket. And they smile and they laugh. and It's so inspiring to me. You look at Chabad. Take a look what Chabad began out of nothing. What did they have in America? And look where they're at today. You're just over the world. You have to stand in awe. You travel. The first thing you do when you travel, where's the nearest Chabad? Where's the Chabad house? Where can I find the shul? Where can I find Sudashli shit? Where can I find kosher food, etc., etc.? So there there was opposition. People, people are people. Adam Korev Eitzel Atzmo. All right? But you have to have a broader vision. Maybe someone who grew up a Shnara can't have that broader vision. But when you've grown up with a golden spoon, you can be generous. You can be decent. And, and this... Rep. Meir Shapiro. The opposition raised issues, but he got tremendous support. And here you have to come to, first of all, his own Rebbe. He was a Chatkov of Chassid, Rebbe Israel Friedman. Chatkov, uh, I think there's still a little Rebbe in, in uh, B'nai Braktere. I don't know if I'm right or wrong. I believe so. But Chutkov basically was uprooted by the Holocaust. But Chutkov, this is the Ruzhina dynasty. The Ruzhina dynasty, you see, uh, it fits right in. If you follow me, I see Israel, you're reading my mind. It fits right in with Reb Meir Shapiro. Because what was Ruzhina? Malchut. Malchut. And, and, and the truth is, Charlie, we've struggled with this. I've struggled with this for 70 years, 80 years. Students have asked me, Rebbe, how, how can you believe in Malchut? You know, against all what we were taught, modesty and sneer, tatznechalechet, natan, Malchut makes sense. You understand the Rebbe? He's the image you're looking up to. It gives you a sense of, I would say, Elation. Ah, oh, look at the Rebbe. The, the Rushna Rebbe's uh, Bekisha 
strands of gold, like like you read in Parshat Turuma and and Pekude, strands of gold, cords of gold in his Bekesha. The Rebbe walks out, eight Hasidim dressed in army uniforms greet him, take him to the carriage pulled by four horses, royalty. The Hasid feels, ah, I have pride. My Rebbe has pride. It's good to be a original Hasid. Malchut. It's the Gemara in, in Psachim. They took all the gold that came to the Beit HaMikdash and put it on display. Makam Shem Boglam. That a, a Jew would come to the base of Migdash. Ah, beautiful. Nothing earthly, tangible is missing. And it gives you a halavai. I can be like the rapper. And, and you're thinking, don't be ashamed, pride. And see, the Chatkava is a Chatkava Chassid. This fit writing with Rabbi Meir Shapiro. Malchut, dignity, nothing to be ashamed of. Now, let me go further. But the Chatkavet Ebbe's approval would not be enough. No one had as much influence as the Re'en, Rabbi Avram Mordechai, the third Gera Rebbe. And here you have to understand how Gare began. This too fits in very, very nicely. Gare began with Lamdanut. It remained with Lamdanut. What happened was the Kutska Rebbe died. When the Kutska died, his Malucha split into three. One part, his son took over. By the way, there's a direct descendant today from the Kutzka, uh, named after him, Menachem Mendel Morgenstern, Rabbi. He's Rabbi in Young Israel of Scarsdale. And what, what I lo- love about his life story, he was a typical uh, modern Orthodox kid, which he still is until today. Why you? Personality. I spoke with him many years ago, met him. Very, very impressive, warm fabulous rabbi and uh, he goes to a basketball game uh, I don't know if it was MTA or what and sitting next to him is a, a girl he was out on a date she was a central graduate I believe and uh, he breaks out she breaks out candy and she wants to offer it to him and he's looking at the label he's looking for a heksha and she asked him, what, what are you looking at? And he explained, it's not enough the ingredients. We have to have a hechshet that I know. When we grew up, when I learned in Lakewood, we bought mounds bars for Shabbos. Had no hechshet, but they claimed the ingredients are good. We also thought it was parav at the time. We learned later it was not. But you didn't look for a hechshet on candy. You looked at the ingredients. And this girl, that was their first conversation on this date. They're married now 40, 50 years later, Baruch Hashem. So I love, I love that story. It's like a story of Ruach HaKodesh, how to find 
a lady who will make a fabulous wife and you make a fabulous husband for her. But but coming back when when the Gera Rebbe when the Kutzke Rebbe's son took over, some of the Chassidim were not pleased. It's not on the level of his the Kutzka, his father. So Sachchev broke away. They began. Another third, they had a Rosh Yeshiva, Rabavra Mordechai, Alta, Rottenberg. And they said, you have to be our Rebbe. He said, no, you have to be our Rebbe. So he said, I'll become Rebbe on one condition. I will lead with my Gemara. Quote, excuse me? Rabbi Yitzchak Meir, who I, I know, this is not the third Rebbe, the first Rebbe, Rabbi Yitzchak Meir, sorry, if I, the Rim, the Rim, Rabbi Yitzchak Meir, thank you. Rabbi Yitzchak Meir said, I will lead with my Gemara. And that's how Ger began. And Ger, who became the second Rebbe? His grandson. All his children predeceased him. Who is his grandson? The Sfat Emet. Ah, right, the Sfat Emet. You're talking about Gedole, Gedole Yisrael. And in two, and the Re'em, Spaki and Shas Kulo, Goin Shabagoinim, could speak on a level with Rav Herzog, with anyone you mention, with, 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 with Rav Cook, Rav Herzog, Kim and Shas. Ger has always stressed learning. You go to a Gerish Tibble, they daven Kabbalah Shabbat, they break, sit and learn Gemara for an hour. Shabbos morning, you go to a Gerish Tibble, Shachrit, some make Kiddush, break, sit and learn. Then Kriya Satera. And, and, and the, this is part of Ger. So you see, it fits right in with the concept of a yeshiva, something unique, something special, something that Galicia and Poland never had before. 1923, at the uh, Knesiagadola, the first Knesiagadola in history, I had the privilege of being at the last in history, 1980, he proposes the idea. There was a lot of talk behind the scenes. There was opposition, like I mentioned. Who needs it? Chadash HaSom in Torah. That's he joking? He's going to raise millions of dollars? Why do we need competition? Tamir, Slabatka. There was talk. Butcherai, I'll use a Yiddish word. Uh, how would you translate butcherai? Mean gossip, negative gossip, behind the scenes. But then our good at Yisrael formally came out in favor. We support Reb Meir Shapiro to lead the way and establish a yeshiva Lublin, the home of Gedole, Gedole, Yisrael, hundreds of years ago. Yeshivat Chachmei Lublin.
the support of Agudat Yisrael was crucial. And 23, two ideas of Rabbi Meir Shapiro become officially Agudah ideas. Dafyomi, Yeshivat Chachmei Lublin. 1924, Lagba Omer, he calls for a big public demonstration laying the groundwork for the yeshiva. He was fortunate. He had the land, a wealthy Hasidic Yid contributed this tremendous piece of land like Mr. Gris, like here. He has the land, lays the groundwork, calls tremendous ceremony, inviting all the Gedolde Israel from greater Poland. Thousands of Jews show up. His own Rebbe, the Chutkeva Rebbe, Rebbe Israel Friedman, Reb Shlomo Eger from Lublin. Reb Shlomo Eger, recognize the name? That's a grandchild, a direct descendant of Rabbi Akiva Eger. And that's the sad story that uh, the Rabbi Akiva Eger's son sat shiva for his grandson because he became a Hasidic Jew, a Hasidic Rebbe. And Loa Lenu in this year, 2024, whenever you meet an Eger who's still Jewish, direct descendants of the Hasidic branch, there's only one exception. There's one Eger family that are not Hasidish, that are Balei Tshuva, that America turned them into Balei Tshuva. But Loa Lenu, you have Goyim Gemurim with the name Eger. And if you scratch their veins, at least their grandparents, I don't know today, they'll tell you, yeah, our great-grandfather was the Haicht Rabbina, who was the leading rabbi in the Prussia. Shem Yerachim, what happened to the Jews in modern times. By the way, Rabbi Kavego also has direct descendants through the Chatam Seifa. That, that you can't forget that uh, his, his uh, daughter, who later married the Chatam Seifa, was specific Shani, as I recall. Uh, there are many, many there. The Chatam Seifa's descendants, including my own great-grandchildren, are Chatam Seifa descendants. And it's a sight to see, great-grandchildren, and already, wow, commitment and Torah and learning and knowledge and planning their bat mitzvah and ba mitzvah. Wow, what kids, kanayin hara, what children. Okay, Baruch Hashem. Reb Leibelega was there. Uh, let, let me give you a few more names who participated. 
the, the Biyana Rebbe, Reb Meisha Friedman, that's also part of the Ruzhina dynasty, Reb Aaron Levine, the Reishadav, can anyone tell me who he was? Reb Aaron Levine, that's the great-grandfather of Nat Lewin, the famous lawyer. Reishadav, that's his family. I think it's the grandfather. His great-grandfather was the Beit Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak Shmelkis. Wow, he was there. What a turnout. What an event. Rabbi Shapiro spoke. Fabulous speaker. The audience was mesmerized. And he described what's going to be built and what the building will have and, and a, a, a swimming pool and a mikvah and a library second to none and beautiful classrooms and a shul and dormitories and, and kitchen and kitchen facilities. What an event. 1924. Well, people went home some were inspired, some were laughing. Leave it to the Jews not to hold hands. What's what they get at? There's a bottle, he's seen up. What's he talking about? Who that the name in the guilt? Where will he get all this money? Boy in Azabinian, that's his Fagoyim, nicht Such a bill for Gentiles. Not for Jews. But Reb Meir Shapiro went to work, as we will see. And five years later, six years later, the dream became a reality. We have a lot more to do, my dear students. We're scratching the surface. But I hope we're bringing honor and understanding to the memory of Rabbi Shapiro just breaks the heart that you know you say how he only built in Israel. I was thinking of Tzvat. Tzvat he could have done something. Yerushalayim would have had the problems. You follow me, Israel? It's like Hebron had to go to Slabatka had to go to Hebron. But you know, you look back. But all right. The Rebani Shlalem feared the Welt. God runs the world, and we have to do the best we can. Take a look at Russia and the Ukraine today, how many hundreds of millions of dollars went in to rebuild Yiddishkeit there. And they rebuilt it. And who knows what will be. Could be that dummy Rakefet was right when he pleaded, Kamen Aliyah, Kamen Aliyah, no, the Rebbe tells us to stay. You know, South Africa, I don't go into great details. You know what I'm talking about. Bismashir comes, stay there, stay there. And they did build a tremendous Yiddishkeit in South Africa. I don't know, it's, it's a dialectical tension within me. But I, do we need Jews here today? Would it be something if we could pick up Borough Park and Flatbush and Lakewood. I don't want more. Those three communities 
and plant them here, could you picture the results in the next election? But Azriel, you got to take over the army. We need an army here. Understanding something, Al Hanais, the Gemara in Saita, Dachmandalid, Memhei, the Rambam, Parakhsayim, Hilchat Malachim. We need an army. We need an army. That's Rat Hashem. I'm doing my share. I mean, I, I served all my sons in law, all my grandchildren. One grandson's career officer, another grandson, weapons development, uh, Raphael. But uh, we need an army, a real Jewish army. All right, uh, to, uh, pardon me for getting carried away. To reiterate, what did we do today? All right, yesterday, I have to tell you, I, I still don't have a black and white answer. Where do you draw the line of Sniot and where do you publicize Tarat Mishpacha? How do we handle those two? There was a display here at some museum on mikvah. Women put up a display, beautiful display. So I also heard criticism, it's not sneered. I said, look, if we don't talk about mikvah, no one will ever know about it. We have to see that every Jew goes to mikvah. Every lady. Tarat mishpacha. Where do we draw the line? I wish we could find out where that all took place 20 years ago. I'd like to correspond and find out who was the rabbi that he said, don't tell me about Europe. I'm, I'm just curious. Who was he? Where did he come from? Was Chabad involved? This was outreach. He's right that the Jews don't observe today. We have to tell them what to do. I was talking it over with my wife and she feels that Sneer has to win out. Now I was telling her that in the tshuva, it, it, they say, uh, look, that woman goes to mikvah, that woman goes to mikvah, you should go too. I said, that's powerful, right? If we, yeah, Barbara Streisand goes to mikvah, right? They're doing that in Israel, by the way, in a nice way. <coughs> it's being headed by, by Leib Levayev's daughter. It makes sense. My wife disagreed with me, so Machlik is a paiskim. Okay, today's year, what did we do? All right, we built on Tafyomi, we built on Yeshiva Tachme Lublin, we told the story of Rav Meir Shapiro's life, Seichet Sadik Lavracha, and we have a lot, lot more to do, Be'ezrat Hashem. Next week will be the final two Sheyurim before Pesach. I'm not following, I'm, I'm ending earlier than the Kolil, but it's due to age, I have to be honest. I, I told my wife, let's go wait for Pesach, we'll close the door. She doesn't want to. She wants to be in her own house and eat what she wants, when she wants. I understand her a million percent, but I can't, to kasha the house, it takes, at our age, it takes us twice as long to do half as much. So I need, from Rosh Kodesh Nisan on, I have to become mentally Pesach and a good few days before Pesach, physically Pesachtic as well. So forgive me. Are there any questions from this lovely erudite audience in front of me? Natan, you have no idea how much I appreciate your coming. Your wife is at Sadeket that she lets you go to the Shia newlyweds. Shanari Shonai has to stay at home and that's it just entertain his wife. 
and I appreciate the visit of Azriel, the covered Ulatiferet. If there are no questions here, I wish you all a wonderful week. We should have the Sora Tovat and I should be able to get out of my house on Thursday. They have the big demonstration once again, shutting everything down. It is so sad, you have no idea. How did they say, no one says that, I'm an idiot. No one says that. How do they select Supreme Court judges in the United States? The president approved by the Senate. There's nothing more political in the world. What they want to do here is one-third of that. That's not the main problem. Yo, Mo, I know what the main problem. Believe me. Believe me, I know. But open up the world. Let's see if anyone wants to speak. Uh, we're opening it up to the world. David, thanks for coming. Recording stopped. Okay. Okay. Everyone talked about the influence of Revel on Mayor Shapiro. Right. Let's work it backwards. What influence did he have in America? In other words, if he's building a yeshiva, he's doing it. It's not the trade why you. If he's building a yeshiva in Poland, why didn't that have an influence on Tovadas and Chaim Berlin? Okay, so uh, I'll tell you. He visited America. At that time, yeshiva was not treif. M many of the rabbinim in Europe had the feeling that America is different. You have to have a college. Uh, and, and, and the fact that it will be under one roof, under rabbi, helps because you don't waste time traveling back and forth. That's the 1930s. The problem is that there were some extremists, uh, Rebbe Hanan Wasserman is the case study, who uh, would have nothing to do with YU because they had a college under one roof and they're teaching Bialik and they're teaching Acharaam, etc. But that was a minor, uh, I would say, a minor negation of yeshiva and yeshiva college. After World War II, the entire picture changes. Uh, first of all, Rabarin Cutler, the yeshivas in Brooklyn were willing to open up a college that would, would have solved their problem. It would have been a college jointly for Chaim Berlin, Teira Vadas, whoever wants to go there. The plans were already made. Mr. Mendelovich was in favor. It is rumored Reb Yitzchak Kutner was in favor. Uh, others were in favor. The city already was willing to give it a charter. Rabbi Kutler banged on the table and said no. Rabbi Kutler, by post-World War II, nothing could be done if he would object. And that's where it begins, the massive feeling anti-UIU, anti-the Rav, anti-Rabbi uh, uh, Lamb afterwards, the Agutha Convention, you all know what went on there. Rabbi Belkin was already chutzletchum. Uh, he didn't challenge them. See, what bothered them more was the Rav and, and, and someone like Rabbi Lamb, because Rabbi Lamb grew up in Teirah His uncle was Rabbi Baumel. Uh, he came from that background. The Rav is an anical of Rabbi Chaim. Rabbi Belkin <coughs> came to America a youngster 
And he remained apart from the right-wing world. As he was a tzaddik, upgehitten alts, 100%, as you'll see when I publish about him. But he already, it didn't bother him as much because he was not flesh of their flesh. He was not blood of their blood. So that's the story. If it, it, it could very well be, if there wouldn't have been a World War II, the, the yeshiva in, in Poland would have been one yeshiva, and the yeshiva in America is an American yeshiva, and they would have been in constant good relations. Could very, very well be. Reb Meir Shapiro never had a bad word to say about yeshiva and yeshiva college. So that answers your question. He, he was very impressed with Rabbi Revel, and Rabbi Revel and Mrs. Revel were very impressed with Reb Meir Shapiro. I can tell you that on a personal level. That's, that's the Emmis, but World War II and what happened afterwards. And you know in Israel until today, there's no yeshiva university. And I, I, I can tell you years ago, a Rosh Yeshiva of some stature said to me, we need a yeshiva university here. I said, yeah, and you're going to demonstrate against it. So he said to me, your job is to build it, and my job is to demonstrate. Okay, let's get there in Baruch Hashem. We will be very happy to see. But here in Israel, we have a different problem. That's the army. You see, Yeshiva University, Yitzchak, you and I started college at the age of 17. Right or wrong? At the age of 21, we were out of college. At the age of 23, I had Smeeker and had two master degrees already. Shortly, a few years later, I have a doctorate. Here, a kid, my grandchildren and your, your, your children, your grandchildren, started college at what age? 23, 24? And we can't have the same liberal arts we had in America. But anyway, we have to find a happy uh, a solution which will work on the Israeli scene. And we're getting there. Machon Lev, Machon Tal, and all that goes with it. We have, I came in 69. There are 100 more opportunities for a young man, a young woman who wants Torah and Derech Eretz than there were in 69. I hope in another 50 years, there'll be 1,000 more opportunities. There's Ratashem. We, we will get there. That's why we have Yom Atzmut, and that's why we say Hallel, because with all our problems, Baruch Hashem, we're alive and kicking. And now we have a new problem, the, uh, what's it called, the Silicon Valley Bank. I can't believe how stupid I am. Two, night, years, two days ago, I heard the news at night, and I said, oh, it's a problem in America. You should see the headlines today on the uh, social uh, religious media. You know how many... Hundreds of millions of dollars of yeshiva in Israel are tied up in the Silicon Valley Bank, and no one knows if they'll be able to get the money out. There are all types of statements, yes, no, everything out, partially out, the legal part of the bank, who knows if they want the legal parts, we had that here in Israel, the North American Bank, uh, 40 years ago, which I can never forget how many people went to jail all people who are mocked on glob kosher, etc. Uh, and, and I knew some of them. But uh, all right, we got to survive uh, our misfortunes and go mechayel al chayel. Yes, yes, uh, Jack. Okay, you, you mentioned 
part of the opposition to the to the yeshiva was what will the goyim say? Well, how will the goyim? Poland is a devout Roman Catholic country. What? This is an this yeshiva is an abomination to a devout Roman no, Catholic. Actually, I, 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 I'm going to come to that act, and I'm going to tell you a drasha, but. Uh, the answer is very simple, and it exists in Poland until today. There's some Roman Catholics who love Jews and embrace Jews and recognize their whole religion is an offshoot of Judaism. With them, we had no problem whatsoever. There are other Roman Catholics, and they're the minority, but filled with hatred of Jews that's indescribable. And that's the whole machlokage, you know, what goes on. Did they cooperate with the Nazis, didn't they? The answer is very simple. There were Roman Catholics in Poland who risked their lives to save Jews. Their chassideyumatolam, when you read the stories, you break down and you cry that people put their lives at risk. People gave their lives to save Jews. And then there were Roman Catholics who were happy to see the Gestapo shoot a two-year-old kid in the head and throw a three-year-old girl onto cement and break her head in front of Mithnayam the Eda. So, unfortunately, this is the picture. Yeah. Did the yeshiva attract any hostility from Roman Catholics of any kind in Poland? I would imagine it did, but it was a minority. It was but so I, small. We barely know about it? No, I don't... I, I, I have to check the doctorate let me check that, uh, see if he has any information. Okay, I'll check, I'll check the doctor. I'm going to cite the doctor, but not yet. We have to do it shlav by shlav. But uh, I am going to talk about the question of public uh, affair uh, raising anti-Semitism. You, you'll hear, we'll get there. We'll get there next week, Bez Rattasham. I hope, I hope next week. Yeah, okay. Uh, Jack, what more can we do to find out about Har Harbor Island? It haunts me. Who was the rabbi? I, I, wrote, I wrote the rabbi again with uh, some comments, and maybe I'm going to send, I think I'll send them a link to the, to the share from, uh, from yesterday, and, and we'll see if he can come up with anything. Rabbi Silverman is his name. And this Rabbi Silverman is in Harbor Island where? The, the plural one, the, the no, it's club. not the same. So that's over on the other side. It's closer to Balhaba. <laughs> He's convinced. Right. He, you said that it was that the original said on the intracoastal. The yeah. one on the east coast is on the intracoastal. Uh, the one that I found was what? What, what city was, was it? In Tampa. In Tampa, right? That's oh, on right, the other right, side. But you said that they mentioned. In the source that it was on the intracoastal. Okay, that they can go and back down. The intracoastal is usually refers to the barrier between the barrier islands and on the east side. Okay, right so, so, so what you're saying, so we're at a dead end. So why did, so Reb Manasseh Kanga writes Harbor Island should have been Harbor Islands, plural. But you said it was plural <coughs> in the original, I think. No, I, I, no, in the original it's Harbor Island. Am I right, Jack? Ha, yeah, but unfortunately, separate halacha are not so precise. I understand, but the rabbi denies it has anything to do with his shoe. Was he a Chabadnik, this, this Silverman? You don't know. I, I mean, very fascinating. I mean, the outreach and, and the machlokas between myself and my wife, that touches upon the heart of the issue. 
and and I would love to know. All right, uh, either we'll find out or, or we'll have to let the issue hang fire. Okay. Yeah, I'm wondering if uh, you know this the, the linguistics. Uh, Kew Gardens Hills. I think a lot of people just quickly say Kew Garden Hills. Right. So right. it could be, you right. know, that, that. Right. I always was taught Kew Garden Hills. It's supposed to be Kew. What's about the Kew Gardens Hills? And I was always taught Kew Garden. That's right. what I heard. It's Kew Gardens Hills, and Kew Gardens Hills does have hills, and Kew Gardens does. Uh-huh. Uh, all right. Go figure. All right. The, the, the trouble is, it's 20 years. We have the name of the Balabas who asked the question, Kaban. I would assume it's K-A-B-A-N. And Jack Googled him and got nothing. Yes, it means boring. Well, remind everyone, I'm not next week, and then we break with Rosh Chodesh Nisan. We'll pick up again right after Pesach, Koach. And we should only have the Soratova Jeshuat Nechamat of Lengnu Valkol Yisrael. In two, we meet again in health and happiness. Dasvidanya. Right. And you don't change the clock for another two weeks, right? We don't change so the it's clock. It's 3 a.m. next week. This yeah. Shabbat is normal. Next Shabbat is normal. When do we. One second. Hold on. Jack, what do you. Uh, what, wait. We change the clock Thursday the 24th. So right, this right. is the last, the last Shabbat. The last Shabbat. Aha. We change it right before. Let me write that down so I don't make a mistake. Fourth clock changed. So, but it doesn't affect our classes. In other words, the classes. Yeah, but we changed it two days ago. So it's no, why three it changed? Right, right. Week. No, I understand. You're six hours. You're six hours behind us right now. My wife's sister always calls four o'clock Sunday. And she called yesterday, 3 o'clock, and my wife says, wow, you're calling early. And she says, no, the clock has been changed. All right, maybe one day we'll get the world together until we meet again in health and happiness. Das Vidanya. It's eight hours.